welcome to the 2017 Outpost Sermon Series Podcast. Today we continue our series on Answers to a Skeptic, in which we bring many common questions that skeptics have to light regarding the Christian worldview. We continue tonight by answering the question, How can a good God send people to hell? What is the purpose of hell? How should I correctly understand hell? Find out the answers to these and other questions right now. We are continuing our series, Answers to a Skeptic, tonight, and I am very thankful that Nate chose to do this series to start off this semester. Something that has always attracted me to the outpost is that this is a place where we are willing to preach uncomfortable messages. We're willing to look into the hardest questions, and that's something, as a, as a Christian, when I started following Jesus when I was 21... One of the things I first started doing was really tackling those hard questions head on. And whenever I would encounter something in my Bible I didn't understand, I would, I would just obsessively seek the answers to it until I found peace or until I found understanding about who God is. And what I found through the years is that the hard topics, rather than pushing us away from God, actually draw us near to Him. And I want you just to think tonight um, how many easy, comfortable messages you remember that have changed your life. And if you're like me, it's probably none. You know, I can't, I can't remember the soft, uh, you know, easy, uh, here's how you live better type of message. But the messages that have remained with me are the ones like we heard at World Mission Summit this year uh, from Joseph Gordon, if you guys remember that message, a man who lives in northern India and has seen radical, radical moves of God. And his message was not a comfortable message. It was about suffering. And so, you know, that's the kind of message that stays with me. So tonight, we're going to be looking at a very difficult topic in Christianity, but I don't want us to approach it apprehensively. Um, when I, actually, when we were going through, like, who's going to preach which topic, I looked at Nate and I said, Nate, I want to do this one. I wanted to do this message tonight. And it's a privilege to speak on one of the most difficult aspects in Scripture. So if we could actually turn to the next slide. Tonight's topic is how could a loving God send people to hell? And I don't know about you, but I have, I can count on one hand the number of messages I've heard from the pulpit about hell. Uh, it's one <laughs> before tonight. Uh, and that was actually in Russia when my wife and I and a couple named Jake and Shelley Leffler were, t- were over there in Russia together. We started doing a Thursday night service with our Russian friends and we had a guy from the University of Texas San Antonio's Chi Alpha, Johnny Houck, he's the director there, total man of God. He came in and as a guest preached a message to our students. And of all topics, he didn't announce this to anyone. He's just like, tonight we're going to talk about hell. And I was like, oh my goodness, you know, I brought new people. And I'm like, of all, of all the nights for them to come, this is it. But um, let me tell you, of all the messages we preached that year, I still remember his. I still remember that night. I remember Ileana getting to share the gospel more clearly that night than any other night. And so that's my hope for tonight. I, I want to draw us closer to Jesus. So let's dive into this, this message. Let's start off with the first, what I would call, skeptical proposition in keeping with our theme in this series. Why would God... Uh, oh yeah, before I do that, let me just mention, uh, if you guys have questions after tonight, which I'm sure you will, uh, please text those into this number. Uh, it's the same number as it has been the last couple weeks. In several weeks, at the end of our series, we're going to wrap up with a post-post where we will address more questions as they come, kind of like we did last, last Thursday night. So the first proposition I want to look at, and, oh, forgetting my slides tonight. So um, here are some of my sources just really quick. Um, the Reason for God, which we're selling at the book table, I highly encourage you to pick up that book for five bucks as a steal. Um, that's a lot of where we're getting our content for this series. Um, I also recommend The Doctrine of Endless Punishment by W.G.T. Shedd, an old school uh, book. It's written in the 19th century. It's pretty old, but it's got some very relevant messages for today. And then finally, Charles Finney's Systematic Theology, which is not the easiest or lightest read, but it is one that has actually changed my life, and I recommend you pick up a copy. So, okay, now let's get to the first proposition. Um, The first skeptical proposition is, why would God create people just to ultimately send them to hell? 
I've heard this question quite a bit, um, you know, on the plaza. I've heard it in just dealing with unbelievers and, and people like that. Um, so first of all, let's look at this question. We have to understand that this question kind of lies on an assumption that it's somehow God's fault that people go to hell. Essentially, this question says, why would God create people just to ultimately send them to hell? It's basically saying, couldn't God do something to stop that? It's, it's, the underlying assumption is, couldn't God prevent sinners from being sinners? The Bible really speaks to the opposite and says that in spite of God's goodness, his mercy, kindness, his every attempt to win us back to himself, in spite of all that, we can stubbornly continue to reject him. And that free will, that gift of free will, which he's given to each one of us, we actually use against our creator. Now, I want to address two things really quick. Who goes to hell and why? First of all, who? The simple answer is sinners go to hell for knowingly violating God's commands. That's just the simplest answer. Now, sometimes you may have heard this in Christianity that people go to hell for rejecting Jesus. I would argue that this is actually a half-truth. And the problem with half-truths is you might end up with the wrong half. Yeah, it is kind of true that people will ultimately go to hell for rejecting Jesus Christ and not believing in him. But this always begs the question from the skeptic, what about those who've never heard? You know, what about the people in some remote jungle nation, some, some island and who knows where, that've never heard the name of Jesus? Is it really fair for God to send those people to hell if they never heard about Jesus? If it were true that people go to hell simply for rejecting Jesus, I would say, yeah, that's unfair. Now, what I've claimed tonight is that people go to hell for sinning. And let me, I want to kind of dig into this a little bit. I want to show you that you can find sinners anywhere in the world, any corner of the world, for all of history. The, the record is consistent that mankind has rebelled against God. And so um, let's look, first of all, at three verses that I think show that God really is fair in judging every person, even those who have never heard the name of Jesus. Uh, first of all, let's look at Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen, which says, um, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Uh, the next verse, and we find in Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And finally, in James, we have this verse, Therefore, whoever knows the right thing to do, yet fails to do it, is guilty of sin. And in these verses, we see that God judges the heart individually, that he it will examine your, each of your hearts on a case-by-case basis. And he's going to judge you according to what you know. He's not going to judge you according to what your parents knew. He's not going to judge you according to what your friends know. He will judge you specifically for what you know, because it says in these verses that God can look in the heart and he can test the mind. So he sees all the hidden inner things, all the things that no one else sees. He sees the whole picture. And so I think God is a very fair judge. And then when we come to the, the, the question about people that live outside of Christianity, those people in foreign nations that have never heard of Christ, we, we, the secular historians like to put forth this argument that the heathen people in these places, uh, it, the myth is called the myth of the happy heathen and the noble savage. And the secular argument goes like this. You know, these people were living beautiful, idyllic, uh, wonderful lives, and then the nasty, mean old Christian missionaries came and ruined it. <laughs> that's, uh, to sum it up, I know that's kind of a caricature, but that really is the, the sum of the argument. It's, it's that, you know, the missionaries came and they imposed all their rules on these people and they, they ruined their beautiful, unt- untouched way of life. What we find in history is that this is completely false. Uh, I want to point out a missionary named John Patton, who was a missionary to cannibals. Well, how would you like that calling? You know, <laughs> he spent literally 40 years reaching cannibals and people were like, are you crazy? You're going to, they're going to eat you one day. And he said, well, I'll be dead. So whether the worms eat me or the cannibals do you know, all glory to God. <laughs> that was literally his answer. God, he was radical, but he went into this, this island nation of the Aniwa people near Australia. And uh, if we could turn to the next slide, it has a quote um, compiled from some of his findings there. This is what he says. The natives were cannibals and occasionally ate the flesh of their defeated foes. 
They practice infanticide, which is the murder of infants and children, and widow sacrifice, killing the widows of deceased men so that they could serve their husbands in the next world. Now, let me ask you something. Does this sound like the actions of an innocent group of people? Is this a beautiful, natural expression of life? That you would kill your children, that you would murder widows, that you would eat other people. That's, it's anything but natural. And we see that these people, even without Christ, have still rejected God in their own way. The scripture says, all have turned aside. All like sheep have gone astray. That's all. That, that all there is every people group in every part of the world for all time. And that history has been demonstrated again and again. In India, uh, you had the practice of sati, where widows would be burned on top of their dead husbands' bodies. And, and what they would do is they'd erect a funeral pyre, and they'd, they'd light the husband's body on fire. And the woman, against her will in often cases, would be laid on top of her husband alive, and she would burn to death. This practice, going back to the 4th century B.C., was not ended until 1886. Okay, so this isn't like some distant thing like, like, oh, yeah, human sacrifice. That happened a long time ago, but now we've evolved. Not at all the case. Uh, you know, in fact, a lot of uh, nations, even like Bangladesh, for instance, even more recently, they ended their practice of human sacrifice. Okay, so the people around the world have clearly rejected God, and therefore I think God is very fair in judging all people. Once again, he's going to do it according to what they know. Now, let's get on to the next question. Why? Why do people go to hell? I think this is a very valid question, and I want to address it very thoroughly. We have to understand something, that God's value is infinite. Okay? God as a being, just him in and of himself, has infinite worth and value. And that means that we are infinitely obligated to choose his highest good above anything else. Now think about any choice you make in life. You know, how do you determine what you buy when you go to the store? You know, say like you're in REI and you're browsing the different items. You know, how do you determine what you're going to buy? It's always based on a value judgment. You, you look at something, you say, you know, this is more valuable than something else. I want this. And that can be carried on to an infinite scale. And when we have to choose ultimately what our purpose is in life, it's actually common sense. It's totally logical that God, if he does in fact exist, would be the most valuable being in the universe. And therefore, we are infinitely obligated to choose him. Now, this is why when you sin, and even if it's a little sin, like a lot of people like to claim, even if it's a little sin, it's still a violation of an infinite obligation, an infinite duty to choose God. And that is why hell must be endless punishment. Hell must be endless punishment to correspond to the value of God. And if you can go to the next slide, uh, please, Nate. So hell must be endless punishment in correspondence with God's infinite worth and value. Sin is a violation of an infinite obligation to choose God. That's just the simplest way of putting it. That is why if hell were any less of a punishment than it is, it would actually be a lie from God. He would essentially be lying about his own value and worth, saying that it's not actually that serious a consequence when you sin against him. That's a terrifying thought, but it is true. It's in keeping with what is real. So I want to look at, first of all, we've got these skeptical propositions. I want to look at a faith response. What would, what would faith say to this skeptical question? I think the, the first faith response we need to look at is that God's love risks, risks everything. God, when he made us and gave us the ability to have free will, knew the risk he was taking. Knew that we could use that free will against him. Knew that we would be able to choose evil. And he had to allow it to happen. Think about, you know, any loving relationship. It, there's always a risk involved, right? When you ask uh, someone out, you want to pursue on a date, you know, they could say no. Let's take it a little further. I mean, when you get married, there's a risk involved in marriage. You know, you, don't, you, don't, you know that person pretty well, but you don't know them completely. You don't know what they might do 10 years from now. You don't know if they'll always treat you well. You don't know if they're always going to be a loving person. There's a risk involved. But your love for them is not conditioned on their response, right? That's what love is. It's, it's not conditioned on our response that God loves us. God simply chose to love us for our own sakes. And that involved a huge risk to him. So the second proposition I want to look at is 
uh, it's not really a proposition. It's more of a, an attitude, but it's a very common attitude, and so I want to deal with it tonight. It says this, I could never believe in a God or worship a God who sends people to hell. Now, I've found this to be very, very common amongst unbelievers. First of all, before I get into this, I want to address something. You cannot logically deduce what is true based on your feelings. Just because you prefer something or not does not make it true. Even God's existence is not conditioned on his character. Whether God is loving or not loving does not determine whether he exists or not. Does that make sense? That's logical. <laughs> okay, now moving on, let's, let's dive into this principle. Um, first of all, do you want to go there? Now, this, <laughs> really, this attitude, I, I want to really dismantle it tonight. Um, I think it's a very arrogant attitude. Um, if you think about it, what it really is at its basic uh, sum is a judgment of God. It's basically saying, I judge you, God, not worthy of my worship or my affection or my time because you would send people to hell. Now, <laughs> let's look at the fact that you're judging God. Now, you are in the Bible, it uses this wonderful analogy that we are like clay and God is like a potter. So you, the clay, the thing formed, are going to look at the potter and assess him, and according to your finite understanding, you're going to judge him and say, you're not worthy to be worshipped. You see that? That's, this is starting to reveal kind of the arrogance of this attitude. Um, on the plaza, you know, when I uh, have done outreach and uh, street preach and things like that, I found one of the favorite verses that unbelievers have. It's one of a few verses that they actually know, but one of their all-time favorites is do not judge lest you be judged. Like that's like the all-time skeptical favorite verse in the Bible. Um, of course, pulled out of context. So the problem with this <laughs> verse, if you claim this verse, if you say, do not judge my lifestyle, you have no right to judge me as, as often people do on the plaza. They'll say, you have no right to, to question how I'm living my life. Didn't Jesus say not to judge others? They'll say that, they'll invoke this claim, and in the very next breath, they'll be judging God for sending people to hell. And you see, you're beginning to see now the hypocrisy of holding this stance. How is it that you say, do not judge me, and then you pass judgment on God? Let's go further. It's not just God you're judging, it's Jesus. Or did you not know in John chapter 5 that Jesus says that the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son? Jesus, this Jesus who died, whose life was given as a ransom to many, who was always true, who always spoke the truth, who never took a bribe. He never was persuaded by men. He had no fear of man. This Jesus is going to judge us. Okay. Now let's compare for a moment. Let's entertain this argument a little bit further. Let's compare your track record with Jesus. If you say, I will not judge people. I, you know, I, I would never send people to hell. Let's look at how you've responded when people hurt you. How is it? You know, just take a, take a moment Look through your thoughts. When you've been hurt, what has your reaction been? Have you ever fantasized about getting even with that person? Did you actually fantasize about going way further than they did to you? Did you actually take steps to get even in a way that was more hurtful to them than they were to you? Okay. Did you, were you vindictive and cruel when you used the truth against them? It's possible to speak the truth about somebody, but in a way that is totally ungodly. You know, now looking at your own track record, let's look at Jesus's. Jesus, who was ridiculed by the high priest, <laughs> was silent. When he was on the cross being crucified, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right? There's not a vindictive or revengeful bone in Jesus's body. We can see that clear through scripture. Okay, so that Jesus... That, so if Jesus can be that merciful, and you, as a finite being, have not been nearly as merciful, if we're being honest, how then can you pass judgment on Jesus for judging others? Do you see the inconsistencies here to this, this stance? It really just falls apart. You know, um, I want to share a couple of stories. Um, one story, uh, Eric Sanquist, amazing, amazing friend, amazing man of God, right? I mean, just incredible guy. 
he uh, recently led a friend of his from China to the Lord. When they were in the car, so Eric and, and the other Eric, two Erics, they were in the car with Zhang Wei, their friend from China. And Zhang Wei, you, some of you guys have met Zhang Wei before. You know what Zhang Wei's biggest, one of his biggest hangups was to coming to become a Christian? I would have to admit that all my ancestors are going to hell. And that was really a barrier for him. But I, I'll never forget Eric's response. It was so perfect. He said, Zhang Wei, if you're worried, truly worried about them going to hell, then become a Christian and show them what Jesus is like so they'll be saved. You know, if, you're gonna, if, if you really are concerned about your relatives going to hell, do something about it by being the example that they need. What good is it going to do them if you continue in your rebellion against God and continue to push them away? You're, you're not helping them to know Christ that way. And I, honestly, Zong Wei, I think that was one of the things that really struck his heart and ultimately led him to Christ. So it really comes down to this. Whose side are you on? And really, we do have to pick sides. Um, there was a Christian lady, and Charles Finney writes this account, and it was a long time ago, but there was this Christian lady, and she was praying for her son's salvation. And her son was living a really sinful lifestyle, and he was refusing to uh, come to Christ. And a lot of, God was really moving in this time. Like Charles Finney was preaching, and entire villages were uh, turning their hearts to God. And her son held out, and he was really stubborn, and he wouldn't submit. And so she's praying for him. And when she prayed for him, she almost accused God of being cruel for sending her son to hell. It was almost like, God, you owe my son salvation. You ought to save his life. Well, she was convicted in one of his meetings, and she realized how wrong that attitude was. And she realized that actually God was totally right in sending her son to hell. And that until she took God's side against her son, she had no right to pray for his salvation. Well, when she changed her attitude and her mindset and she prayed for God's honor rather than her son's safety, that's when he came to know Christ. Okay. I I want you to understand this is true of us today. It's not just an odd example. Whose side are you on? To be a Christian is really to be on Jesus' side. It's to say, Jesus, your honor, your dignity, your worth, your rights are worth more than mine or anyone else's. That's what it means. That's fundamentally, that is what it is to be a Christian. Jesus, you're worth more. Your value is greater. It's a value judgment, and it's right. Any other value judgment is wrong. To elevate anyone above Christ is wrong, even if it's your brother or your mother, or your best friend, even if they're a nice person, let me ask you, are they a sinner? Have they rebelled against God? Then how would you, how can you remain in your, in joining them against God, holding this attitude? I, you know, I can never believe in God for sending my mother to hell or, or my best friend to hell. What you're really doing is you're taking their side against God. Um, now let's look at the next faith proposition, you know, love I want to I want to put this out there. God, in His love, hates evil. That may sound strange. Like how can love and hate coexist? That this sounds like a contradiction. Until you realize that the essence of love is preference. Love is actually exclusive and binding by nature. It's not tolerance. It's not being all accepting. You know, I was on the plaza this week preaching, and that's one of the words that the Lord gave me was, "This campus defines love as acceptance." The most loving word to this campus is be who you are. But Jesus defines love as repentance. And he says, no, the way you're living is going to destroy you. Come, turn, come back to me. That's the most loving word that, that someone who's in sin could hear is repent. Most loving word in the entire English vocabulary is repent. So Jesus, to, to, to say that God hates evil it's totally consistent with his love because his love is, is such a preference for what is right and what is good that he must, to be good, he must be against, against that which is evil. He has to. He can't, he can't accept both. Let's, let's move on to the third and last skeptical claim for tonight. This one's a really interesting one. A belief in hell makes a society worse and more evil. Slash hell is used to control people. 
I want to address the first one. A belief in hell makes a society worse. I would argue that um, you'd be hard-pressed to find this in reality. Let's just take a brief historical survey. Let's go back to the last century and look at the nation of Russia, where I've spent time and I've seen the effects firsthand of an ideology that was specifically godless. Okay? The communist ideology removed God. It removed eternity. It said that all that exists is matter. Material reality, that's it. We die, and that's it. And they use that ideology to enslave people and to kill and slaughter tens of millions of people. If you don't believe me or take my word for it, that's okay. Let's look at a man who lived through it, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, incredible man. Uh, He wrote the Gulag Archipelago after going to the Gulag, the labor camps, spending eight years there personally. He, He interviewed hundreds of eyewitnesses who survived the labor camps for 20, 30, 40 years at a time. People that their lives were true miracles, that they survived. One of the most brutal uh, prison camp internment systems in the history of mankind. So th- let's look at his quote. He has a, a, an amazing quote here. It says, Over a half century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that have befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous... This is why we need Nathan Courier. I don't know if you guys realize he's not here tonight, but <laughs> Nathan does like all this work and no one realizes it. So when you, when you see Nathan, thank him next time. So anyway, the sum of the quote, I, it's okay. We don't need to read the whole thing. The sum of the quote, he says at the end, the conclusion he comes to is the exact same that the old people used to tell him. That the reason why Russia went into this tragedy and literally 60 million people were killed, he said, the best statement, the best way he could summarize it is this. They had forgotten God. As a direct result of them refusing to acknowledge God's existence, and they literally tried to eradicate God from the country, what happened is there was no fear of a God or a being who could punish evil in this life in the next. And so rather than what the skeptics would argue, we see the contrary, that where hell is believed in and, and preached and taught, that rather than making the society more evil or more worse, it actually makes it better. (laughs) That it prevents the kind of atrocities we saw, not only in Russia, because let me remind you that godless regimes existed in China under Mao, uh, in Cambodia under Pol Pot. I mean, uh, numerous communist examples that were specifically godless allowed them in their ideology to kill mass millions. There's another quote I was going to put up um, by a guy named Miroslav Volf. And he is an Eastern European, a Croatian, and a more modern example. He lived through some uh, brutal civil wars that took place in Eastern Europe in the last century, the later half of the last century. And he says this. He says that with, if God were not to send people to hell, that God would actually not be worthy of our worship. That it's actually a, it's a modern convenience of suburbia that we are able to leisurely question hell because we're so detached from the experience of true evil. But to those people groups that are experiencing real evil and war and and famine and and that have seen their family members raped, hell is actually a necessary doctrine to help the human psyche not rise up and take revenge. To know that God in the end will have the final say allows them to actually forgive their neighbors. If, if God wasn't able to ultimately, at the end of the day, vindicate things, make things right, then we need to d- take it upon ourselves. And that's, I mean, you can look at history, and it's replete with examples of that. Now, there's a corollary to this argument that says, believing in hell makes Christians narrow-minded. 
What about Jesus, though? I want to put this forth. What about Jesus? Okay, Jesus taught hell a full 13% of all of his teachings were centered on hell and judgment. 13% is quite a bit. I would argue that Jesus was an exquisite hellfire preacher. Okay? I mean, he... He, he, he preached the whole parameters and the full capacity and the fullness of hell. And he, he let it loose. And he didn't warn people before he said really scary things. You know, in fact, a lot of times he would get people to think that he was on their side. And then he'd turn the tables on them. You know, the Pharisees, in one parable, Jesus told them about the, the vine dresser who uh, leaves his vineyard to some servants. And these servants, they abuse uh, his other servants who come to collect the, 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 the fruit uh, that owes to him. And they, they abuse these servants and they send them away. And then he sends more servants and they send them away and they kill some of them. And then finally, the owner of the vineyard sends his son and he says, maybe they'll respect my son. And the whole time the Pharisees that are listening to this are going, yeah, yeah, he's going to, you know, what's he going to do? And, and then finally he says, then they kill the son thinking that they can take the inheritance for themselves. And Jesus asks the Pharisees, he says, what do you think the mass is going to do when he returns? And they say, he will utterly destroy them. And then he, in a very, the very next sentence, he turns it on them, basically says, look, you are the guys that are going to do exactly that. Okay. So Jesus, I mean, he, he preached hell very thoroughly. In Matthew chapter 13, here's a, here's a direct quote from Jesus. He says, um, then the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and all them that do iniquity, and they shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Jesus. Okay? So he says these, these utterly brutal things. But we've got to remember, Jesus is speaking not only as the one who will judge all people one day, but as the one who fully understands all the parameters of hell. He understands everything there is to know about hell. He understands what it's going to be like. He understands, he knows it in his, in his infinite mind. He knows exactly what that punishment is going to be like. So for him to withhold that information or to not tell us would actually be unloving of him. So to the skeptic who says, Christians, you're narrow-minded for believing that people will go to hell. I would argue this, that Christians, when we believe that people will go to hell, we actually are driven to make even greater sacrifices on their behalf that they wouldn't. And this is consistent with love. The Christians really do love. And it's not, our love is not diminished by a belief in hell. Neither was Christ. So what is hell? Now I want to look at this uh, really quick. And I've got a, a few quotes. If we've, do we have a time frame on the computer? Okay, perfect. Okay, so, yeah, right there is good. Guys, thanks. Um, I've got a quote. Uh, where do we get the word, where did Jesus get the word hell from? The word hell comes from this very specific picture. It's from the word Gehenna. Jesus uses the word Gehenna 13 times. And now a lot of people, when they think of hell, there's a lot of pop cultural uh, rubbish that's kind of been ingrained into the our, our psyche <laughs> together. You know, there's like a lot of weird ideas like that Satan will somehow be ruling over hell and like everyone is going to have to worship him. And it's totally, utterly false. It's not biblical. The Bible says that actually Satan and his angels will be tormented forever and ever in Revelation. So this, Satan's not like sitting on some throne in hell, like doing whatever he wants. He's being tormented as well. And Jesus, he uses this word Gehenna because it refers to a valley that had very specific meaning to the Jews. And the reason why it had a lot of meaning to the Jews is because when Israel first came into the land of Canaan, and they were first eradicating the people groups in that land, one of the things that these people groups did is they worshipped some gods that were utterly, utterly wicked and evil. They worshipped Molech and Asherah, who was the wife of Baal. And Asherah, um, they believed, was like the goddess of reproduction. So that gave them a way to uh, worship while they engaged in all kinds of sexual perversions. Um, and then what they would do is, they, because they believed that this goddess or these gods had provided babies to them, they thought that these gods in turn expected the babies back. And so they had a specific valley where they would go and they would, they would light some fires and they would burn their babies alive. That was, the, that was how they worshipped their gods. And it, it wasn't like, 
people with bones in their noses and, you know, like cave dwellers that were doing this kind of thing. At the time, they were the most elite people groups in the world, most advanced civilizations. It'd be the equivalent of like Silicon Valley executives participating in these, these awful, indescribable acts, you know, after work. It was literally like that kind of uh, cultural development participating in that kind of wickedness. And so here in the quote, we read that uh, night seems to have been the special time for these awful burnings. The whole scene, visible from the walls by the glow of the furnace and the flames, formed such an ideal of transcendent horror that the name of the valley became Gehenna, the usual word for hell. Yes, that is where the word of Gehenna, the New Testament word for hell, came from, the place where demon worshipers sacrificed children in fire. So this is a very like unique conception of hell compared to the Greeks and uh, the Romans of Jesus' day who believed in Hades. And Jesus uses Hades occasionally, but Gehenna is the primary word he uses for hell, and this is the picture he wants to get across. And if we go to the next slide, uh, I just want to read some quick um, excerpts from various verses in the New Testament about hell. Um, Actually, next slide after that. Sorry, Nate. There should be one that says... Yeah, maybe back. (laughs) Anyway, Jesus, he describes hell um, as everlasting fire, eternal fire. Um, In another verse, it says eternal flames, uh, the fire that never shall be quenched, flaming fire, everlasting chains, eternal fire, the blackness of darkness forever. So what we gather from these, and a lot of skeptics, and a lot of even people in the church wrestle with, like, what is hell and what does it all entail? First of all, we can determine just from these, this sample of verses that hell is endless and not temporary. A lot of people try to make the argument that it's going to be like a temporary duration. And in fact, a lot of worldviews today make that same claim. Islam, for example, believes that all people, will go to, all people who go to hell eventually will be released from hell, although after a very, very long period of time. I spoke with a Hindu uh, student uh, the other day, and he told me the same thing, that, that everyone who goes to hell in his worldview eventually will be released from hell, and we'll all jo- be in heaven together. So their idea of hell, and the, the idea in a lot of worldviews of hell is that it should be um, reformative, that by suffering X amount, we're going to pay and atone for our sins. But as I demonstrated earlier, because our guilt is infinite, there's, no, there's nothing, you can't pay an infinite guilt in a finite amount of time. And so hell is actually endless, and it's not reformative. That Actually, sinners who are in hell, the Bible teaches they will never get better. Not even 1,000, 10,000, 30,000 days later, they will not be better. They will not be more reformed. They will not look at God more kindly than the day that he throws them into hell. Okay, it's just, it's punishment forever. Now, I want to look really quick at a couple of verses um, that I think are on the next slide, that this, life, this lifetime really is it. You know, another, another uh, proposition by a lot of people is that maybe um, at the end time, when we've died, we'll get another chance. You know, there's like, maybe we'll have another hope. I think scripture totally denies this. In Hebrews, we read that unto men it is appointed once to die, but after that to judgment. Okay, so it just very clearly says, after death, then judgment. Uh, Jesus, in Luke's gospel, he taught, strive to enter in the straight gate, for many I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able to. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, when the play is over, or when the author walks on the, walks on the stage, the, the show is over. And the idea he's trying to express there is that when, God, when we stand before God to be judged, there, you can't go back. <laughs> You know, you, you couldn't actually repent in that moment even if you wanted to because your repentance wouldn't really be authentic. It would just be motivated by, I don't want to go to hell, so I want to try and get into heaven. Um, let's look at our final uh, faith correlation to, to the skeptical proposition. I want to just put this there, that Jesus' love saves sinners. Okay. Now, as we've been going through hell and looking at just the the finality of it and the heaviness of it and the uncomfortability of it. I want to put this to you guys. And when I did this study, this is the most amazing thing that came out to me. You cannot rightly understand God's mercy 
with a wrong idea about hell. You cannot, because if we think that God somehow owes us salvation, that he's obligated because, because our sin is an accident or it's our nature, if you think that, then God's mercy is an obligation, a debt that he owes to you. And that's not mercy at all. But a right understanding of sin and hell says that it's our fault. We are guilty. We, we ought to be condemned. We deserve it. And that makes God's mercy so merciful that he would truly pardon us as criminals. Guilty, not poor, you know, helpless sinners, but as guilty criminals that he would say, look, I know the wrong you've done and the, the requirements that I must enact on you. But I, for your sake, I want you to be pardoned and I want you to live with me forever. That's grace. That's pure grace. That's, that's mercy without question. And so this, this is what's amazing when we dive in these hard topics is they actually lead us closer to Christ. Uh, I want to look at a verse. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And it's not just speaking about physical death, but eternal death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God. See, salvation is a gift. It wasn't owed to us. Not only that, it's in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself is the gift. Okay, this means... That the goal uh, that Jesus has of giving us eternal life um, is motivated or should be motivated by him, not by a fear of hell. A fear of hell will not save you. I want to make that clear to you guys tonight. A fear of hell will not save you. God's goal, Jesus' goal in preaching hell, as thoroughly as he did, is to simply describe what is true. It wasn't to give us a motivation. He wasn't saying... This is how terrible hell is. Now do everything you can to get out of it. The thing that Jesus preached in the center of the gospel is this. Jesus wants your trust and your love. And that can only be had through the cross. You see, Charles Finney, he preached this. He said, heaven and hell will never convince uh, a sinner to give up sinning. They never will in and of themselves. Only the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ crucified on our behalf. Only the grace of God, the unmerited mercy of God, only that has the power to transform our hearts. So why talk about hell? Why preach hell? You know, Leonard Ravenhill in a quote um, says, if there were more hellfire preaching in the pulpit, there'd be less hell-bound people in the pew. You know, why is that true? It's true because I think hell is calculated like nothing else to grab our attention. And let me tell you, this generation... Um, needs his attention taken by the gospel. And so Jesus uses hell as the ultimate end of the law to lead us back to himself. That's the goal. The law is, is described in Galatians as a schoolmaster leading us to Christ. So hell, as the ultimate fulfillment of the law, all the preaching of hell, hellfire preaching, is calculated to drive us to our knees before Christ and to cry out to him, Lord, what must I do to be saved? So many people go through life with this smug attitude. Um, I don't need Jesus. I can be a good person on my own. I met a guy this week on campus. He's, you know, he said to me, he said, your Christianity thing, that's a good thing for you. There's no more arrogant thing to say than that. You know, because it's not, it's not just good for me. I don't, I'm not in this for what's in it for me. I don't, you know, the, the campus doesn't comprehend this. And I, if there are any skeptics in here tonight, I would challenge you. You don't understand what it's like to live your life not for personal gain. You know, students are here to, to get a degree, to get a good job, to get a good career. Everything that, you're, that the majority of students on campus are doing is calculated to better themselves. So when someone comes out there like a crazy hellfire preacher and is preaching the gospel and is getting ridiculed and mocked, a lot of times students literally do not comprehend why. What's in it for you, they ask. Why are you doing this? In fact, I want to relate a story really quick about a friend of mine, Kevin. Kevin Ram, back there. He's got one of the most amazing testimonies I've ever heard. I'm not kidding. When he came to CSU, he was not a believer. But there was a preacher on the plaza named Preacher Tom. And Tom is preaching uh, for a full week. Kevin goes and listens to this preacher. And the whole time, Kevin is enraptured in what he's saying. And at the end of the week, some skeptic is hurling an insult at Preacher Tom and says, Preacher Tom, why are you out here? It's useless that you're here. 
It's a complete waste of time. And preacher Tom looks around at the crowd and he says, let's see about that. If any of you right now want to repent and give your life to Jesus, raise your hand. And Kevin's hand shot up. I'm not kidding. Okay. (laughs) The Holy Spirit was convicting Kevin through the message. But it was the Holy Spirit that prompted Kevin to move into obedience and to trust Jesus with his life. Okay. So I want to end tonight. uh, If Ryan and the worship team can come back up. I want to I look at just a few categories of people here tonight. The first group, I believe that there are some of you. I don't know if it's a lot, but I know that some of you, that the fear of hell is maybe the primary motivator for your Christian walk. That, that if, if there were not hell, you would be living a different lifestyle right now. I know this because I was there. Uh, in fact, when I rejected Christ and I started to walk away from God, it was a slow slow wander away from him. And a lot of what tethered my morality to God was the fact that I was afraid of hell. That was like something that kind of kept me from just diving headlong into immorality and into, into just selfish pleasure seeking. But eventually over time, that fear began to erode away and that conviction waned. And finally I began to reject my traditions. I, I, I began doing things I would never have dreamed of doing. If, if that is true of you, if, if you are still primarily motivated by fear of hell, you are not saved yet because you have not trusted Jesus with your heart. You cannot approach God trying to get heaven or trying to avoid hell and actually love him. He's going to be cruel to you, a taskmaster, not a loving father. So to this group, you've got to come up front and deal with this now. The, 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 one of the most famous preachers, John Wesley, when he, I'm reading through his biography right now, when he, he went on a missions trip to America, he was from England, he went on a missions trip to reach the Native Americans. And after the trip, he wrote this in his diary. He said, I went there to convert them, but realized who will convert me. See, his whole approach to Christianity had been legal. It was like, what must I do? To, to fulfill the law? What must I do to win God's approval? And it was just ticking off boxes with tallies. And he realized like he didn't really have faith at all. So if that's you tonight and you realize like you've been walking legally, trying to obey, fulfill the law of God, but not trusting Jesus with your heart, do not leave this room tonight that way because your soul is in jeopardy. The second group of people are those who are not afraid of hell and don't believe anything I just said tonight. I want you to heed my warning. You know, before I preached this message, I wanted to make sure I preached it on the plaza because I believe that this is a message ultimately that belongs outside these walls. It belongs, it it really is the most relevant message for people today. That your soul is, is eternal and it has enormous, enormous value to it. So much so that we believe God himself would die for you. Do not flippantly laugh about hell. Do not think that this is a joke or a laughing matter. Tonight, I come to you as a sober-minded man. I'm not making jokes tonight. That hell is very much real. It's a, very, it's, a, it's a reality. And maybe for some of you in here tonight, if you were to die tonight, you, wouldn't, you, would, you would be going there eternally. And I'm not saying that to fear monger. But again, I want to convey the seriousness of what's at stake. All people will live forever, but it remains to be determined where you will live forever. Jesus offers eternal life, which is not just life forever. It's the quality of life that he offers. It's his life. You see, people in hell will live forever as well. Eternal life isn't just living this life, X amount of, you know, multiply it by an affinity. Eternal life really is more about the quality of life. It's happiness forever in the presence of Jesus. So to you, I would say, get right with God now. You, you, don't, you can't presume on his mercy or patience. You can't presume on it. You don't know how long the spirit will strive with you. You don't know how long your life is. Finally, there's a group of you that has abused this doctrine to comfort others. I want to challenge you tonight to choose God over others. To choose God, even against those that might be closest to you. To take God's side. To say, Jesus, I will not diminish 
your value or your honor so that I can gain favor. Those of you that maybe have believed that hell is not real or, you know, you, you're a Christian, but you, you, you and, and a friend maybe asked you once about hell and you dodged the issue. I want you to come up front tonight and to, to really come to God, come before Jesus and say, Jesus, I repent. I'm sorry that I, I preferred my comfort over your honor, your value. And tonight I'm choosing you above everything else. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for this opportunity. Father, to know you, to love you, to come closer to your heart. Father, I thank you. Holy Spirit, (laughs) move right now. Move upon our hearts. Stir us like you stirred Kevin's heart. That our hand would shoot up and say, yes, Lord, I want you, Jesus. I want you, Lord Jesus. You're so good and you're so worthy and you're right in all your judgments, as your word says. You're right in all of them. You're fair. We have no controversy against you. And if we do tonight, Holy Spirit, would you convict like you have so well in the past? Would you convict right now, Jesus, and lead us to our knees, Lord God? Lord, I pray that that to those who are not right with you tonight, that tonight would be the night that they would get right with you, God, and that the things I'm saying, you would bring home to their hearts right now. Prick their hearts, prick their consciences, Holy Spirit, right now in the name of Jesus and draw them into your love. Lead them to obedience, Lord God. Make them willing to obey you, God. Make them willing. Offer your mercy out, Father, fully extended and let it not be a common thing, but, but a precious, indescribable gift. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message brought you life, encouragement, and hope through the reality of Jesus Christ. If you would like to join us for a service, meet us at 7 p.m. at Health and Exercise Sciences Room 105 every Thursday night. For more information, visit xacsu.com or facebook.com slash xacsu. Until next week, we love you. May the Lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering.